Cooey, darling. I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I'm absolutely delighted to bring you stories from people who have achieved varying sizes of inspiration or wonder. From pushing the boundaries of what is humanly possible to changing the way that we see people. Come with me on a journey of discovery to find out what makes these individuals my heroes and I guarantee they will be yours too. We have a stellar guest, an absolute goddess. I was there to deliver a message through song. That was my job. That never, ever left me. And absolutely, she is every woman. I was, as far as I know, as the only, well, certainly black British artist who was very vocal about just supporting, not just the gay community, but doing what was absolutely right. The one, the only, Beverly Knight. How are you, babe? I am so good. Do you know what? Every single time I speak to you, I always leave feeling inspired and elevated. That is a gift that you have as a human being. Oh my God. Thank you. (laughs) And you have an ability to walk into a room And you are a superstar. Everybody looks at you and yet you are also relatable and salt of the earth. Where do you think that comes from? I think being born and raised in Wolverhampton has got everything to do with it. Yeah, yeah. There is no way you can walk around in Wolverhampton and give it, look at me, I'm Miss Knight. You know, they're not going to have it. They're just normal, earthy people and... I'm just one of them. So I guess that's where it comes from. And I'm very much in touch with my family. I go and see them all the time. My friends are still my friends from school. So I'm still very much rooted to the place that made me. I think it's so important to stay connected to your roots and remember that line of where you come from, right? To go forward, you need to know where you came from. Absolutely. People lose themselves quickly if they don't. So talk to me about Wolverhampton. I've spoken to you about this before, but it never feels like the sort of birthplace of soul music to me. (laughs) So where was that love of soul born? It was born in the church. Yeah. That's where it really came from. Slap bang in the middle of Wolverhampton town centre is, was, a little church, which a very long time ago used to be a chapel, but was taken over by the Pentecostal Christian group who moved themselves into there and established themselves as Temple Street Pentecostal Church. And my family went there, my mum and dad and and that, and um, that church kind of grew and grew and grew. And now it's like a beacon, like a light in the middle of (laughs) Wolverhampton. And um, when the church grew... The church musicians kind of grew, the church band grew. Yeah. And little Bev, I was up there all the time singing with them. So it came from gospel. And of course, soul and gospel are so intertwined. You know, it's the same feeling, it's the same vocal styling and all of that. But one singer for Jesus, the other one singing for the devil. (laughs) (laughs) So. <laughs> and how did it how did it make you feel because music is such a sensory thing isn't it yeah you singing in that church you know that first time can you remember how you felt at that moment difficult to say 
exactly how I felt. Because the first time I sang in front of people, I was four. And I had no fear of singing. Mm. <laughs> I was just like, get me on that stage. Here I am singing. Um, but singing in a church and singing for the congregation, the thing that really kind of sticks with me that I can always remember is I was there to deliver a message through um. song. That was my job. That never, ever left me. I have that still to this day. And... That's the place to learn how to do it. My God. Because if they don't think the message is coming over correctly, <laughs> they'll invite you to get off the pulpit. And so as a kid, I did my utmost to, to always deliver it. And now right for my own music, I'm still delivering messages. I feel like you obviously started with soul. Mm -hmm. But what I've noticed with your career since then is that you have become the eternal shapeshifter with genres of music, with everything you've done. And how easy has that been? And has it been met with any resistance from your gospel roots or the soul roots? I am definitely a shapeshifter. I remember a magazine went on to describe me as a maverick because I was making music that was outside of the black experience <laughs> with quotations. Yeah, wow. Well, I didn't think I was doing anything revolutionary. I was, you know, hardly Prince, but I like all kinds of music. So I reflected all kinds of music as I got older and more confident. It wasn't easy because it was met with a hell of a lot of resistance. I don't care. I was going to do the music I wanted to do, no matter what it took. I mean, the big change after I released Come As You Are and the album Affirmation dropped. Oh, people wanted to kill me because it just didn't sound like a traditional soul album. Yeah. Should, again in quotations. But then being a massive Prince fan, Isley Brothers fan, and, you know, people who were never locked down to one kind of sound. I was like, well, why, why not me? Why can't I introduce a lovely, loud guitar to what I'm doing to go with this loud voice completely why the hell not it's funny because the world turns and now you hear people like Janelle Monet and people who are mixing it up musically and not sticking to one kind of linear so-called black sound and uh you know I was doing that way back <laughs> and I'm glad I feel like you've always been ahead of the curve uh, and a groundbreaking artist in terms of UK soul. And then to shift it up, I remember the gays discovering you and going, oh, this is our queen. <laughs> Do you remember that moment where you became a motherfucking gay icon? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really realise it or appreciate it until... I was accosted in the club in 1999, around there, by my friend who is no longer with us, Tyrone, who was doing PR work and talent booking for Big Gay Out. Oh, I remember it so well. And he was doing some of the talent booking and he just stormed up to me and said, you have to sing, you have to sing in the Off The Hook tent. Off The Hook was um, a night at the Astoria, remember? I used to go. Because prior to that, I had just stood up for what I thought was right. You know, when I was asked to perform at Pride and the band members that I had at the time, being churchy people, weren't having it, just 
no, no, don't want to know, no, if you do it, then we're not going to be with you. I was like, okay, thank you, goodbye. Thank you, mm. next. So I moved on, got rid of that band, got a whole new band, and I think that was when people started to go, oh, because I was, as far as I know, as the only, well, certainly black British artist who was kind of very vocal about just supporting, not just the gay community, but doing what was absolutely right. Yeah. Just doing yeah. what was right. And I think that's where where it all came from. And suddenly I had a little contingency of all the gays coming along to my show and being yes. very vocal and I loved it. And it just exploded from that point onwards. I remember that moment. I do. <laughs> I remember I was in London at that moment and it was it was really refreshing to see a soul artist playing Pride and doing those big shows because actually it was before you know, the money-making machine was seen from record companies. It was before a lot of the pink washing. And you were doing it because it meant something to you. Yeah. So I want to talk about that time because you really did set the tone of using your platform to lift people up and to help marginalised communities. And I feel like that's something you've done all of your career. I've tried to do it my whole life. My friend at school came out to me when he was 30 or something. Mm. When you love people and you appreciate people, humans, no matter what form or whatever, when you see humans being castigated and abused just because of how they're born, like, really? Seriously? No. Nah. Not on my watch. It was never going to happen on my watch. Where do you think you got that from? Was that something that was instilled in you from your family or was it from the church in some weird <laughs> turn of events? Do you know what? That's a really good question. And I think, I think it probably did in a weird way come from the church because no one kind of stood upon the pulpit and was preaching hatred and abuse but it was always this kind of unspoken thing that to be straight is to be right and everything else is wrong. Nobody actually preached that. It was just always kind of there, like a stinky miasma. You know what I mean? Like it was <laughs> understood that this is how good, normal, decent people are and they are not good and normal and decent. Mm. And it always chafed. So... When I started to ask questions about the tenets of the faith, about Christianity, and I was like, well, don't agree with that. Don't agree with that. That's wrong. No, 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 no. And it's not that I was pulling Christianity apart. I was like, why has this book which I've been raised on, which has so much good in it and so many good truths yeah. and, you know, good sayings and things and proverbs that we all live by to this very day. Why has that been taken by a bunch of people, put through a hate wash and come out saying, you shall not this, you shall not that, and they are this and they are that? I, no. If God is love then there should be no conditions to that love. 
end of story. Mm. And that was what I felt. I guess I've just had that forever. So in a weird way, yes, it did come from the church, but not in the way they thought. (laughs) Well, on behalf of our community, I thank you, darling. (laughs) Talking of God, I want to talk about Prince. One of my biggest regrets in life is I never got to see him perform. You can go one further. You performed with him. I did. Walk me through that. (laughs) Okay. So, as you know, Prince found virtually my entire life. That phone call that I got to say Prince wants you to open for him at the O2, (laughs) my face nearly fell off. I was like, no, this can't be happening. Yes. So I was invited. He was doing his uh, 21 nights at the O2 and I was asked to open for him, not on all the nights, just a couple. I can still remember walking into the O2 going, I'm about to open for my hero. And Prince fans knew I was a Prince fan, you know, it's like well documented. So there was a lot of love for me opening for him. I got off stage. Unknown to me, Prince and his band had watched the whole thing. I had Ah. no idea. So when I got off stage, walked down that big corridor that leads to the dressing rooms at the back of the O2, Prince grabs me and says, I want you to do my after show tonight. Will you stay and do it? I was like, yeah, of course, of course. Went back to my dressing room, cry, cry, cry like a child. Prince threw down two and a half hours of utter ridiculousness. It was just the most amazing show. And then I went next door to the Indigo, which was where the after show was. And I got on and did my performance and then during keep this fire burning I'm hearing this second guitar but with a lot more open phrasing and stuff and I'm like what is oh my god and then I see Prince in the wings just playing along to keep this fire burning and then out of nowhere he walked on and joined us of course the audience went mad I literally shit myself Um, (laughs) I'm still singing at this point and I'm like I have chills. Prince is singing my song on stage with me. I just, I, I, I don't know how I held it together, but I held it together. And one by one, his band members kind of came on and there was this kind of takeover where we left and his bands came on and stayed. And I was like, well, my life is made now. That's it. But it wasn't over Because I left the stage. We all left the stage. We wanted to see the performance. And Prince dragged me back on. So I had to stay on stage and just be part of his band. And just jam. And just jam. And we ended up doing three hours. He just played whatever he felt like playing. And I had to keep up. And it was incredible. And then he kind of was playing this groove. And then he leaned back, took the mic, as he's still playing this groove, and said to me, do you know the song Wade in the Water, which is an old, old gospel song? And I thought, I haven't sung that for a hundred years. I said, I know it, but this groove sounds to me more like Aretha Franklin's Rocksteady. And I said, and I know that inside out. He said, okay, the mic's yours. Let's go. So he changed the groove ever so slightly. So it sounded more like Rocksteady. Wow. I stepped forward and I was off. And... 
It was, oh God, when I think about it now, I could cry. Phenomenal. Unbelievable. I mean, it's good at those points, surely, that you keep your roots in Wolverhampton. Yeah. I want to talk about something I've noticed over the years is your work ethic and your stamina. You know, I remember coming to see you in The Bodyguard and you sang Whitney, No Perfect, Night After Night. Now that takes a certain kind of superhuman. So... What goes into making sure that you're, you know, mentally strong, physically strong and emotionally strong to do all of those things? I work out. That's the first thing. I look after myself physically. The health and fitness and vocal stamina is so important because when I'm writing my songs, I write them with a ranginess in mind. You can't do that. If you're not fit, yeah. I have to be able to replicate what I did and then some. That's the whole point of a live experience. So I keep myself fit and really, really pay attention to what I eat and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's a bit, you know, puritanical. I do allow myself to let my hair down, but not when I'm on the regime. And when I was in the bodyguard, trust and believe I was on a regime. Because that was a sing and a hop. Whitney didn't sing those damn songs night after night after night, you know, mm. with no break. But I enjoy the fitness, the wellness, looking after me. And I've gotten better at it the older I've got. I've got no choice. And your husband is incredibly healthy and into all of those things too, right? Massively. We're a, a partnership of dynamism when it comes to health, fitness, well-being and I would be on a, you know, my fitness drive if James wasn't in my life. But because he is in my life, it's so much more disciplined, focused and dedicated. So as someone that works as much as you do, how have you coped through the pandemic? How's your mental health been? Lockdown and the pandemic and all of that was tough at times. Generally speaking, um, I'll be honest with you. I hope people don't castigate me for this, but the first lockdown, the weather was incredible, like it is at the minute. And I was like, actually, I'm really glad to be home because I, for the first time in my entire adult life, I was having a break, a long break where I wasn't expected to do this, do that, da, 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 da. And I was just able to have that. And just enjoy walks, sunshine. But I think the second time we went into lockdown, when it was the winter and it was cold and we had snow and it was just rain and that was tough. I was kind of busying myself with other projects, um, projects outside of music, not just music focused projects. So that was how I got through it. But if I didn't have that and I didn't have a husband who was like-minded and if I didn't have my little Zane, I mean, thank God for dogs, eh? The healing powers of a dog. Yeah. Obviously, it's been a really challenging couple of years and I feel like social media has been a place for togetherness, but also it's been very divisive. Yes. And, and one of those things being Black Lives Matter. I feel like we moved so far with everything that happened with George Floyd and then the football happened 
I feel like we're taking, you know, one step forward and 10 back. Yeah, that's how it feels. Society has to progress and humans are dragged kicking and screaming along with it, some humans. Um, So as a whole, once the scales fall from people's eyes and they begin to see reality and people like me and others are like, we've been telling you this has been happening for years and decades and forever and, you know, the powers that be were not listening or people didn't believe us and now you see it in front of your eyes, undeniably, a man murdered for the whole world to see in the most heinous fashion by someone who is meant to protect and serve. We've been telling you this for ages. It's... Will Smith said something like, it's not that it's necessarily getting worse, it's getting filmed. (laughs) And he's right. We are open to it. And of course, social media means that the minds and the musings of some of the worst who live among us is also there for us all to see because they're happy to put it online. The football happened. I was waiting for it to happen. I knew it was going to happen. I absolutely knew the minute we saw Rashford step up and it was saved. I was like, okay, tomorrow it's going to go off. And then we saw Sancho and then little 19-year-old Saka. I was like, are you kidding me? And because it was one black person, another black person, another black person, I thought it's going to be terrible. Tomorrow's going to be hell. I didn't even have to wait until tomorrow. It was like straight away, social media, all these messages of just hate, bile and racism. And how do I feel? Difficult. Those who have a heart, those who care and just don't know, just a genuine naivety or ignorance, are taking on board what they're being told about learning about the culture of black people and what is acceptable, what is not, the whole concept of white privilege, not meaning what you got in your pocket and how much money you've got and all of that, but just the privilege of being able to walk down the street without somebody making an assumption about you a hundred yards away. They've never, they don't even see you up close, but because you're black, you're obviously this, that, 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 that drug dealer, you know, aggressive, loud, and that being in and of itself a privilege. And people who care have taken that on board and are really making strides, you know, to be more inclusive, be more diversive. Mm. So it feels like on one hand, society progresses as a whole, generally speaking, but the people who have no intention of progressing are more vocal now than they've ever been because they're being given the tools to be vocal via social media. So it's a tricky one. I mean, they're they're just going to have to be dragged kicking and screaming into this wonderful world that you and I inhabit. You're totally right. I feel that progression that's happening is is so accelerated in terms of those wanting to learn those wanting to have empathy and and yet (laughs) exactly that the people that are the worst of humanity are almost being helped and assisted 
to get their hay out. Yes, yes, yes. That's it. I took 500 words to say what you've just said so succinctly. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Those who hate are being given the world's biggest megaphone to shout their hate. And the rest of us are like, are you serious? Yeah. Like, humanity progresses and there's fuck all you can do about it. Get on board. Get on board. It's a wonderful place to live, right? Progression. wonderful. It's joyful. It's such a wonderful, warm, colourful, beautiful place to be. Exactly. And to live and to inhabit. And you've got people who are so determined to stay as they are in their hatred and just their putrid, acrid bullshit. You know, get on board and find a better life for yourself. Because if you don't, the progressive amongst us, because if you are using social media to spout your hatred, well, guess what? We can use social media to counteract it. Let's end with a bit of joy. So I want to know a book that's informed your life. Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela. Ah. I've read that book so many times. It's a masterclass in how to be gracious and forgiving, even when, quite frankly, the rest of us are like, you don't have to forgive shit. (laughs) And you ain't got to be gracious for anything, but take the higher path and be gracious and forgiving. (sighs) Mandela, I was so blessed to meet him and just that man's presence. <laughs> yeah, I met him twice. First in 1997 at a concert in Trafalgar Square that was held to celebrate seven years of freedom for Mandela. And I was blessed enough to be part of that. And he just came into my dressing room to say thank you. Whoa. Yeah. What a life you've lived. But that book that man if i could just have a little bit of his graciousness i'd be oh man i'd be so made up (laughs) i can't even find the word phenomenal i mean i know that you've traveled a lot but if there'd been one trip that stands out as a trip that's changed your view of the world yeah 10 years old i got on my first ever plane to new york city and In 1983, it was Fame, it was Knight Rider, they were the big programs. And my uncle, he was one of those people, oh, you know, my 10-year-old niece, let's show her around the sights and that. He took me to the Bronx, so I saw Hill Street Blues, I saw, you know, where it was set and based and everything and just was like, my mind's blown. He took me to see the outside of the New York High School of Performance Arts, which, of course, fame was inspired by. And then everybody, it seemed to me as a 10-year-old, I'm sure it wasn't actually the case, but in my 10-year-old mind, everybody seemed to be driving a Trans Am, you know, a Pontiac Trans Am. And they were everywhere and they were black. And I was like, oh, my God, everybody in, in America drives Knight Riders. They've all got their own Knight Rider. What I'm trying to say is that trip to New York and going and seeing these things that 
I was only seeing on TV changed everything. It somehow meant that my dreams that prior to that trip seemed so unattainable and far away were right there, right there. Yeah, tangible. Because I could do it. I really could. It just pulled the world. It made the world a lot smaller and everything just was in my grasp. And I went home saying... I'm going to sing and I'm going to travel. Wow. It genuinely changed everything. Wow. It really did. Has there been a human in your life that has kind of made you who you are or made you the most who you are? If you'd asked me that like a long time ago, I'd have said, yeah, mum and dad. And I'd have waxed lyrical about mum and dad. And of course, they've made me who I am, you know, just physically and in terms of my musical abilities and, and that kind of thing and my character. But as I've gotten older, I've come to realise the role that my grandmother has played in my oh. life. Grandma Essen is my step-grandmother. My mum's biological mum didn't actually raise my mum. She kind of was out of the picture early doors. And my grandfather married this young, gorgeous woman called Victoria and kind of looked after mum from about the age of seven onwards. And she's still with us, matriarch of the family, even from Jamaica. She's like the mafia. She runs everything from, from her home in Jamaica. Oh, my God. <laughs> and as a child, I knew she wasn't my blood relative, but she was grandma. She was mm. absolutely without a shadow of a doubt. That was my grandma. And every single week, without fail, we'd go around grandma's house and just run riot. And my mum's younger brothers and sisters, who were quite a lot younger than mum, you know, look after me. And my uncle would have me in his attic playing music. So that influenced me. And grandma was always there to put her arm around me, ask me how I was, ask me how I was feeling. She was that rock, that font of wisdom. And it was only when, as an adult, I learned just how much of a role she took on. She was very young when she got with my granddad, who was a little bit older than her. And I realised just how much she took on, you know, becoming a stepmom to my mum and influencing and shaping the way my mum is. My mum's very loving, nurturing and caring. That I realised it all stemmed from her. This woman who, the blood doesn't matter. She is my grandmother. She's the only grandmother I've ever known, really. It sounds very spiritual and whatever, but she, in her Christian way, you know, every night she'd get down on her knees and she'd pray that God would look after Bevy, her little Bevy, ah. you know? And if grandma hadn't taken on my mum and raised her in the way she is, I don't know where my mum would have ended up. Consequently, I don't know whether I'd even be here. So I owe so much to ah. her and her light and her beauty. She's wonderful. That's beautiful. I feel like I know this one, but has there been a love that's taught you the biggest lesson? I loved Tyrone so much mm. and so deeply. So Tyrone was that first gay man that 
basically open up your eyes to a different yeah. world and you became deep friends with deep deep friends and when i think about tyrone it still makes me want to cry i'm still not past the fact that he's gone tyrone changed my life so so profoundly when he entered it like a whirlwind and Tyrone was that man that just introduced me to a whole world and he made me understand what it was to live every day as a young gay man in a world that was hostile especially him as a black man. I remember he said something to me which broke my heart. He said the two worst things that could happen to me in my life was being born gay and black, which was like, what? What? Something that profound and it, it shook me to my core and it was trying to emote just how hard his journey had been. I don't think he ever wanted to be anything other than being a black man. I don't think he wanted to be anything other than being a gay man. That was him and he was beautiful and resplendent. But sometimes it was so hard for him. And give me a minute. It was in that that I resolved to dedicate my life to make sure that nobody would ever look in the mirror and feel that way like ever, because I saw what it did to him. And I wanted to reach that part in him and make him say, but look at you, you're beautiful, you're funny, you're clever, you're... But sometimes it was just so hard to be that man. And then on top of that, HIV positive, the world was hostile to him. And I swore before he passed that I would pick up the baton and I'd run with it. And I'd use that baton to, quite frankly, beat people over the head with the message that being hateful and abusive to people simply because of how they are born is bullshit. And I will stand with any army who will come at you and I will defeat you. And equally, I would wave the baton with a great big, fucking rainbow flag at the end of it to say look this is the standard this is the banner I'm prepared to hold it and wave it high to help people who are feeling lost and feeling like they are less than or that they just can't bear being who they are to say come here I'm going to put my arms around you I want to make you feel better I'm going to help to elevate you because you are worth it every day of your life and I just hope that wherever Tyrone is right now, he knows and he sees that and that he's proud. He would be so proud. His legacy lives on through everything that you've done and that you are doing. And uh, that's all we ever want to do. However short people's lives are, that's all you want to do, right? You want to make an impact. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He lives on. He lives on. When I see Pride Month and I see people owning their true and authentic self, 
and coming together to celebrate that, especially on the most marginalised of people. Tyrone lives on. He lives on, you know? It oh. just makes me so happy. <laughs> mm. Well, then let's end with a track that makes you feel full of life and that soundtracks your life. I'm going to choose a song which is part of my own live repertoire and that I sang in The Bodyguard, but just makes me feel incredible every time I sing it. I'm Every Woman. Ah. Because it's so uplifting. It's so celebratory. And I've been doing festivals and I see big men with their (laughs) pints in their hand singing I'm Every Woman. Yes, I love that. And they sing it on the top of their voice and I absolutely live for it. That song in a gay club, it really releases some sort of demonic energy. The inner queen in anybody, doesn't it? Yeah, that's my go-to song. Beverly, I could talk to you forever. You're fascinating, inspiring, interesting. You're a fucking gift (laughs) is what you you are. So are you. (laughs) Coming up next, we've got someone who has devoted her life to helping others. Creator, founder of Choose Love, it's Josie Norton. There was never a strategy. It's been driven by outrage and love. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like, share and of course, subscribe.